in a highly technocratic society, you have a lot of people telling you that they understand what's going to happen next. So I don't buy the extrapolation. Now, you could certainly say, okay, we have GPT-4, we're going to have GPT-4.5, although Sam Altman, who, as I'm sure you know, is the head of OpenAI, he said, we can't keep doing this. We're going to run out of text on the web and we're going to run out of computers to train it. It's actually a quote. He said, his quote was, we're at the end of an era. The media has been saying that since Ford Motor, like since, you know, <laughs> Ford Motor Company, you know. And so it's just a perennial, it's a kind of Marxian idea that, you know, um, advanced technology will displace and alienate workers. John von Neumann, the famous mathematician, and he came out and said, you can't have a self-improving machine unless it's purely random. Because if it's actually planned, then you have to contain the blueprint for the improved machine in the machine. And the, 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 the lower machine, you know, if you, in other words, you, you, have to pre, you have to put in the knowledge. In other words, it's not going to think of it because it's a machine. It has to actually have access to the components, the blueprint, right? Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Eric J. Larson, who is the author of the book, The Myth of Artificial Intelligence. So yeah, I'm really curious to hear more about your background. Okay, sure. So I, I actually started in the field. We didn't really call it AI back then. It was sort of like we called it machine learning. And now everything is AI. It's just kind of this meaningless title, <laughs> you know. But I started working on machine learning, you know, applications for, for language processing, for text processing. And my first job was actually at a famous AI company in Austin, Texas called Psycorp. They're actually known for building this really large knowledge base that was supposed to exhibit common sense reasoning. But I started January 3rd, 2000. So I can pretty much say that I've been working on AI for the entire century <laughs> so far, <laughs> right? So we're 23 right. years into the new century and I've pretty much been, yeah. So that's when I started. I came out of a background in mathematics, not computer science and philosophy. So I studied, I studied mathematics and philosophy as a double major. And I got interested in computer science, to be honest with you, when I, I needed to make more money. It's, there's, there's not a lot of money in philosophy or mathematics. And so if you program, you can, you can do well, especially in a town like Austin. It's very tech savvy and, and very much in need of smart people to code. So that's what I started doing. I, I was a Java developer for a while at a big company, EDS. And then I transitioned back into doing more smaller artificial artificial intelligence. I was funded by Lockheed Martin's Advanced Technology Laboratory for a while. I built a, a system to predict when a troublesome event was going to occur in a large corpus. I can't really get into it because some of it is actually classified. But so I did I did stuff like that. And then around 2006, I, I submitted a, a, a proposal for DARPA funding. And probably you know about DARPA. And they they gave they gave me the that funding and then they they gave me the second year funding, so I I had a company, and basically it's kind of funny because people don't do blogs anymore, but we would basically say, 
in any language in the world, we would say, here's the blog and here's what it's about. And, and it's funny because like nobody even thinks about blogs, but back in 2006, blogs were like really, really saturated information source on the web. There were blogs everywhere. It was a really big problem. How do you sort them? How do you search them? So we had a, a way of doing that. Around 2016, I started another company where I basically computed influence of people on the web and said, I, you know, how do I, so my obsession was like, how do I assign this person a score? How influential is this person holistically, like taking everything into account? So how much information can I get about he or she? And how do I actually assign a score that, you know, this person is 37, this person is 57. So I did that. It sold to an educational company, the best schools. Hmm. And uh, I made a, f I made a, <laughs> I shouldn't talk about money, but I, that was a fairly lucrative venture. Hmm. And um, you also got Docker funding for that one, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was partially commercial funded and it was also, it was partially funded through the DOD through DARPA. Yeah. When you um, say commercially funded, what I'm interested in like back in or 10 years ago, what were like the funding rounds for something like this? How, how much did you guys? It was raise? called strategic investment. So it came not from VC, but actually came mm -hmm. from the educational, the, the, hmm. the actual, they were potential choir. They, they were owned by General Motors, if you can believe that. Huh. Yeah. They, this education company was owned by General Motors. But yeah, so they, they put a couple million dollars into it as what's called strategic investment. It's not VC. And the idea was that I can't, you know, I have a non-compete compete clause, so I can't go to a, another company. And basically it was, you know, it was really great funding, but you're locked into that deal. And I took it and it, it worked out fairly well. I mean, it could have worked out better, but who knows? Yeah. And then, yeah, I started thinking, I want to, I want to sort of, you know, set the record straight on AI. I've been working on, at that point, I'd been in, in the field for 15 years around 2016, you know? And it's just like, people are saying crazy stuff. <laughs> like they don't know what they're talking right. about. They literally don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. And uh, so that's, that was sort of the impetus for the book. You know, I finally got enough confidence with, you know, starting companies where it's like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to say something here, you know? So yeah, that, awesome. that's sort of my story. Yeah. Let's jump into epistemology a bit. So I am, I really like this quote you put on in your book, I think by Karl Popper. Quoted in this other book by Asadir McIntyre, After Virtue, oh, about okay. basically prediction of innovation necessitates its invention. In a so, highly technocratic society, and then with the example of the wheel, uh, I'd be curious to hear sort of your your summary of that point, and also curious to learn more about this book, After Virtue, if you would recommend it. Oh, sure. Yeah, it's, it's one of the great books if you're into philosophical literature. This was sort of a watershed event. I think it came out in the 80s and still widely read and discussed. But his, his point was you have, he, had, he had a whole constellation of points, but one of his points was in a highly technocratic society, you have a lot of people telling you that they understand what's going to happen next. And hmm. he, he was trying to say, that's just illusion. It's actually not true. And so how do you tell a highly technocratic society that they're, that, that they don't know what's coming around the corner? Because it's dangerous to think that you know something that you don't. And so he pointed out invention 
and he used the example of the wheel, like the classic invention, right? Somebody, right. it was probably a crude knowledge over time, but at some point somebody said, pulling this sled is way too much energy. And if we, you know, if we, if we had a, if we had a wheel, we could reduce the number of people pulling it. They could go do something else, division of labor, right? Like it, it just would, you know, and so somebody at some point had that idea, but if you say that you can predict the future, let's imagine you're a year before the invention of the wheel, just stipulate, right? How would you predict the wheel a year before? You either know what it is, in which case it's now, right? It's not a year from now, it's now. In other words, you can't sort of fuzzily talk about the wheel. You either know what the invention is or you don't. So every invention sort of happens when it happens and you can't really predict it. And I use that as a way of saying like, you know, we either have artificial general intelligence and we know how it works or we don't, you know, there's no point in saying it's coming in 20 years. It's coming in 30 years. That's just dumb. It's just dumb. Yeah. I mean, we, we either know what it is or we don't. And right now we don't. So we don't know if it's a, if, if it's 30 years or 300 years, we just don't know. Or if it's never going to happen, but claiming that we sort of know is just, I don't mean to keep casting aspersions, but it yeah. is a little bit stupid. If you think, if yeah. you think about it for a few minutes, you'll get how it's dumb. It's like, you don't know if you knew you would say. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that was the point of me including that in the book. When I bring up this point with friends or people I'm debating on this, they have this fuzzy thing in their head that you can just like combine existing technologies and stitch them together into something that then works, but that's essentially a, a new invention. So it's yeah. something you, you cannot predict, but people ex like to ex extrapolate sort of the research funding that's going into these domains. And yeah, especially one, one example here is I think like reinforcement learning, combining that there's like good, a good amount of advance with like the Minecraft bot. I'm not sure if you saw that, like there's a bot that can play Minecraft and then save their it's new sort of discoveries to the to the knowledge base basically and you could combine that with like some of the gpt4 gpt gpt technology yeah do you think there's some way we can predict these kinds of inventions or to what extent are we limited to do that no i don't i so when it comes to a real advance in ai i think that we have to actually To, you know, we have to actually get the the, the the blueprint first. So I don't buy the extrapolation. Now, you could certainly say, okay, we have GPT-4, we're going to have GPT-4.5, although Sam Altman, who, as I'm sure you know, is the head of OpenAI, he said, we can't keep doing this. We're going to run out of text on the web and we're going to run out of computers to train it. It's actually a quote. He said, his quote was, we're at the end of an era. So he's already the guy who started all this this craze about large language models is actually the one who's trying to shut it down now. You know, so we could extrapolate and say we'll have GPT 4.5 and so on. But what we can't I don't think it's possible to extrapolate and say we're going to have a smart machine that's generally intelligent. Right. Right. Because we just don't know what the blueprint is. And if you don't know the blueprint, you just really can't put a number on it. If you want to put a number on it, you're basically dealing in myth and religion. You're not dealing in science. We just don't know. And it would be nice if the field sort of took that more seriously. But people just love talking about existential threats. And so, you know, here we go. Yeah. 
And then another point I liked in your book about abduction and in my head, it sort of sounds like the same as conjecture or hypothesis generation and validation. I'd love to hear your sort of explanation of abduction and maybe also how this relates to monotonic and defeasible inference. Yeah, so that's a lot of, there's a lot going on in that. So if you look at the, the, the classic case of induction is you have a, a sample of pri you know, prior observations. So you can say, okay, I see a white swan. I see a hundred white swans. I see a thousand white swans. And then my inference is going to be inductively that all swan swans are white. So you're actually looking at the whole and then you're, you're trying to find a covering rule for it. What abduction does is say, I'm looking at this one event, right? Not, not, you know, what's happened in the past. I don't care. It's typically a unique event. So it's something surprising that you see. And, hmm. and it says, what's a plausible cause to account for this effect, right? Like I, I make an observation, an individual particular observation. Well, what brought this about? Right. And so it, it's fundamentally different from what machine learning does, which is to say, I need more data. The data is always from the past. How can it be in the future? Right? So I need more and more data and then I'm going to find a rule. The problem with all can, all AI research, including deep neural networks, everything right now is you can't handle anomalies or novelty, right? So generally speaking, this is the right text. If you have a generative model, right? Like generally speaking, this is the right next word to put, right? But if something was really, if, if, if you had something that was really anomalous or off, the system basically is just working off of what it, what it has been, you know, exposed to in the past. So we don't do that. Like we use induction all the time, but we also have an ability to see something uniquely and reason about that. I've never seen this before ever. And I can still think mm. about it. How is that possible? Right? How, how is it that I can see something for the first time and still wonder about what caused this, how, what explains this, how does this come about? So we clearly have a background, like a very large knowledge network that we're using in addition to machine learning. We use something like neural networks, obviously we do, right? When we recognize images, it's pretty obvious that we're using, you know, something like mm. neural networks to, it's, it's not like at the level of neurons, it's not the same story, but like we're using something like, I've seen this before, I know what this is. But when we come across something that surprises us, we can't rely on machine learning, right? Because machine learning is just painting a big umbrella over something. It's not saying this specifically is different and uh, human minds are way better than machines right now because we can do both and we can do, you mentioned deduction, monotonicity just means if you're in a deductive system, once you conclude something, it never goes away. And so defeasible mm. logic says, oh, I concluded this, but I got new information. So I'm going to delete that premise and mm. defeasible logic was a big enthusiasm in AI in the 1990s, but it's very computationally expensive and it never got past like sort of toy textbook examples. Like nobody ever figured out how to sort of use it in the wild as it were. So the jury's still out on defeasible reasoning, but that that's what that non-monotonic, by the way, defeasible, there's another term it's called non-monotonic, which means hmm. once you add something, you can take it back. Right? So I can say, Oh, I think it was the Butler. 
And then I can say, no, 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 I think now it's the nurse, you know. But in a de purely deductive system, once you conclude it's the butler, the butler just sits there and you can't get rid of it. That's a conclusion. Yeah. 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 I'm also interested in creativity. It seems something that we haven't built, but a lot of people claim we already have with GPT. I'm curious, have you come across ways to formalize creativity? I think you also mentioned in your book, Divergent Thinking. No, I mean, I don't have a recipe. I'm writing another book mm -hmm. now. And mm. so I usually sort of do something that doesn't make sense. And so I, I try to find a way to corral or capture serendipity. So I'll, you know, for instance, I'm writing a book, another book, mm -hmm. and I spent about four or five months reading about the French Revolution. It has nothing to do with my book. But right. like, so I kind of like, I think like how we're better than machines is you can, you can look for serendipity. You can say like, this doesn't, this isn't, you know, this isn't connecting the dots. This is an A, B, C, D, you know this is something different. And then you get inspiration and you think you, you have one thought that comes into your, in, into your brain that you wouldn't have had if you would have just, if I would have just read computer science literature, right. I would have been boring. Right. But I'm reading about the French revolution and who knows what the connection is, but my writing got better. And so I think kind of like when I think about creativity, I think about find Saren, find, paths to serendipity where you're looking for something and you found something else. Right. And mm. that's, that's about all the theory I have on creativity. I'm not a psychologist, <laughs> but that's what I do when I write. Like I, I, I look for opportunities for serendipity. Yeah. Oh, that's great. It really reminds me of this work of Kenneth O'Stanley and his work on the myth of the objective. Have you seen it? No, I haven't heard that one, actually. The mm. myth of the objective. Sounds interesting. Yeah, I can send you the link later. It uh, talks about sort of, uh, yeah, non-open-endedness, uh, having like an open-ended system that yeah. explores. And then move on, moving on to superintelligence, I'd love to hear your from you why you think the concept of a self-improving intelligence or superintelligence is flawed. John von Neumann, the famous mm -hmm. mathematician who was largely responsible for the world's first not the ENIAC but the EDVAC the, the next one which had store memory that was John von Neumann's architecture so he was also involved in the, the Manhattan Project and he came out and said you can't have a self-improving machine unless it's purely random because if it's actually planned then you have to contain the blueprint for the improved machine in the machine and the, the, the lower machine, you know, if you, in other words, you, you have to pre, you have to put in the knowledge. In other words, it's not going to think of it because it's a machine. It has to actually have access to the components, the blueprint. Right. And so he said, it's basically impossible to ask a machine to evolve like an organic thing. He made that argument in 1950. What's, what's interesting though, is we never let go of it. Like, <laughs> like we, we still have this idea and I, th and I'm not sure I'm trying to figure out a way to say this with, with, where I don't sound like I'm just, you know, pouring cold mm -hmm. water, but I would turn it around and say, okay, we don't have any, we've never seen a machine improve itself and then that machine improve itself and so on. So we, we don't have that observation yet, 
So what makes you think that the machine two years from now is going to have it? In other words, there's this mystical idea that the machine is going to become intelligent somewhere in the future. And I think that's actually just like a religion. Like, I, you know, mm-hmm. the idea that the machine is going to come alive and then once it's really smart, then it'll make a smarter copy of itself. But we, we already have like really powerful computers now and they don't do that. And so what are we missing? Well, they're just going to get smarter. It's like, what do you mean by smarter? Like more memory? Like what is exactly you mean by smarter, right? So I don't think it's a particularly well-founded research agenda to say that you can have a machine, a mechanical, let's be honest, a mechanical device somehow cognate a better copy of itself. Somehow out of the blue, it just comes in, you know. I don't think that's a particularly well-founded idea, actually. It's a very persistent idea. And I sort of, with I'm not trying to be cynical, but I kind of look at that as like, there, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a mythological, you know, power within people to, so there's something really like all the way back to Frankenstein. Remember Mary Shelley, you know, this thing came alive. We made with science, we made this thing that's alive. And I think like that just won't go away in the human psyche, but it has nothing to do with science or computer science. Like, you know, like, okay, Th- that's my, that's my point. Like I could be wrong. But- that's, that's my take. Yeah, no, I think it's a similar point to what you what we discussed earlier that you it requires some amount of understanding of a thing to be able to predict its improvement. And so the machine itself would need to have a really deep understanding of intelligence itself to be able to like uh, yeah. improve its own code and like how do we get this understanding? But it's the dumber right. thing. So how does it have it, right? Like there's a kind of contradiction almost. I tried to treat that in the book kind of sort of, you know, tongue in cheek with the the woman who said, I'm going to build this, you know. And it's like, well, you know, you either have the this idea for how that it, it's almost it gets back to the the point about the the wheel, right? You either have the blueprint or you don't. And if you don't have it, you're not going to make something more intelligent because you don't know what even means to make. It's like, so I'm going to ask you, Moritz, yeah, I'm going to ask you, Moritz, can you make a more intelligent copy of yourself? You're pretty smart. Well, how would you even go about doing that? Because if you had that, you would just become more smart. You would say, okay, here I am, you know. And so it, it, there's something very, very slippery about that entire discussion. It's not quite yeah. hitting the ground. Although I think if I would need to steal man the other side, one way could be sort of gene engineering. Once we understand the yeah. like IQ relevant genes sufficiently, maybe we can like modify that and then we are a bit smarter. But uh, to assume that that goes like up to the right is also a bit far-fetched, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we'll, you know, there are surprises in AI. I think, I think GPT was, uh, you know, chat GPT was a surprise. We didn't see that coming. So you can't say never, you know, never say never. Right. But you can see theoretical reasons why some of this discussion is just, there's, you know, the feet aren't on the ground, you know, there's some, you know, it's not, it's very difficult to see how you have a self-improving machine. It would revolutionize our entire idea of what a machine was if we had that. And so, you know, who knows, never say never, but I wouldn't hold your breath. Yeah. I'd love to go back to your previous point about your new book. Can you tell more? on what you plan to write about or is it still in the exploration phase yeah i i can't say too much because we're still pre-contract with the publishers but right. i'm 
I'm basically arguing that I need it. I need to work on my elevator pitch because I haven't thought about, I haven't, I haven't thought about how I want to sell this book that the 21st century is awash with futuristic ideas. And there's this general kind of cheerleading that we're, you know, on a rocket ship to progress, but it's actually a very uninnovative century. We're basically just making new versions of cell phones, you know, and it's like we actually, the 1880s were vastly more innovative than, than the two, the, the you know, the, this century so far. So I think like, and I don't say that because I want progress to slow down. I actually want to accelerate progress. So right. if you have bad ideas and misinformation, you're not going to make progress. And it's not enough just to say that we're, you know, exponentially progressing. You actually have to exponentially progress. We don't have a lot of innovations. I mean, CRISPR is a four or five generation downstream result of hmm. the discovery of DNA in the 1950s. By comparison, the 1950s were like a superhuman decade, right? We discovered DNA in the 1950s. And this century, we discovered a way to, you know, manipulate genes. It's a very downstream innovation. And we don't have, we, no fundamental innovations are happening. So what I'm do you think is the, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you think is the, the main like, reasons for that? Is it regulation or self-delusion? I think we're just back in big business, you know, we're back mm. in, in big business. We consolidated a lot of, you know, the web started out, it was this big, you know, power to the people, decentralized platform. Everybody's going to be a citizen blogger. Everybody was going to release their creativity. And by about 2009, we had just big giant corporations like, you know, Ford Motor Company, Google, you know, and they just shut everything down and they're, you know, it's the same story. American business goes through these cycles. I think those companies are just locking in their own profits and they have no interest in someone coming along with a legitimate innovation because that might actually, you know, bankrupt them. Right. Mm. So basically, you know, we're just under the grips of big business, you know, the, you know, and honestly, the AI we have is big, big iron, big tech, big business, you know, hyperfunded, you know, so the whole culture has just moved into this really, really draconian sort of, you know, top down phase. And, and yet everybody, it, we're all still on Twitter saying about how we're so innovative. And to me, it's just like, you guys are just nuts. You don't even know what's going on. Like, it's just not innovative at all. And you're basically being controlled by these large corporations. It's time to get real, you know? So yeah, I, I want to just, I want to get a different discussion going, you know? That, that's my that's my goal. Makes sense, yeah. And then with this current technology, as mentioned, sort of, there I think are potential interesting ways to combine like these induction-based, like deep, mo deep learning models with some of the symbolic approaches. Have you come across any interesting work there recently or in the last few years? Yeah, there's a guy, Pedro Domingo, who I think he's still at the University of Washington, but he's trying to use machine learning techniques to basically bootstrap a, a, like a like a, a more persistent knowledge graph so i think like i don't know if that's going to be a breakthrough or not but we we have two really well-established areas of research in ai 
knowledge we, we used to call it knowledge representation and reasoning now they call it knowledge graphs right but the idea is that you have a persistent structure that you can reason over but that structure has to sort of be informed by data so you take machine learning you take a persistent structure and then you get something more powerful than a neural network i think there's there's room for that and i think the the field will start grabbing different stuff because you know hmm. you know like like altman himself said like we can't make gpt 100 you know at some point right. the game is over it's just you know it was fun it was a nice neat trick but it can't continue we have to find a different path forward so i'm all for hybrid stuff i'm all for combining stuff but i don't see to answer your question more directly i don't see hmm. any way that's really cracked that nut yet yeah right we would know about it right it would be all it was splashed all over the new york times if they did and but, you know, I think that's the right idea is to sample from different sources and try to, you know, it's kind of the similar as this serendipity point I was saying earlier, right? Mm -hmm. Go outside the box and just see what fits and what doesn't fit. And, you know, there's an Einstein, not me, someone that's going to see, hey, wait a minute, you know, and there we go. There's a new idea in human culture. So, yeah, you know, experiment. Yeah, yeah. No, so just taking the current technologies we have without sort of taking into account like potential future breakthroughs, what sort of applications with problem do you think are interesting to solve that ha we haven't solved? Yeah, so I think we're kind of backwatered on robotics and autonomous navigation. I think not, I, I really want to see people put more effort into that. I think conversational AI took a huge step forward with large language models. And so I think we're going to see really realistic dialogue. It's really almost, it's almost like solving the Turing test, right? I think we're going to see really realistic dialogue between a human and a machine. I think that, that that's really going to push forward with large language models. I think that made that possible. We need more people thinking fundamentally, like what makes this system work and why does why is it limited and like sort of mm. why why don't self-driving cars work i i would i want to ask everyone right now all your priorities right. why don't self-driving cars work level five fully autonomous why doesn't that work if ai is so smart and it's not it's not about you know <laughs> this is an irish expression taking a piss you know it's not about <laughs> saying it's not about saying like hey, there's something wrong with ai and i want you know it's, it's about saying, like, we can't make progress if we don't identify what's wrong. So why don't why doesn't it work? Do you have an idea why self-driving cars don't work? Level five? I think a big aspect here is, like, the long tail problem of the weird situations that, that, they wasn't in, that weren't in the data. Yeah. And there's some attempts to, like, synthesize the data and, like, generate a bunch of scenarios. But they will always be limited by the creativity to come up with these scenarios. So, um, so is that a is that an existential proof against AGI? The fact that there will always be a long tail of you know anomalies on the open road, like is that is that actually an existential proof against AGI? I, I think it might actually be, to be honest with you. I think it is a proof against deep learning based AI. Yeah, very smart. Yeah, very good. Yeah, yeah. it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a proof against one aspect one approach to AI. I, I would I'll go there with you. Yeah, oh. definitely. Cool. I'm also interested in sort of the um, your your stance on the automation of jobs. I'm not sure if you've seen my article, but I think there's a distinction you can 
make between automation and augmentation. But yeah, I'm curious, do, would you agree with these people that say like 80% of all the knowledge worker jobs will be automated? And do you think that's true to some extent? The media has been saying that since Ford Motor, like since, you know, <laughs> Ford Motor Company, right. you know. And so it's just a perennial, it's a kind of Marxian idea that, you know, advanced technology will displace and alienate workers. To some extent, workers are alienated. I mean, to some extent, if you're in a modern car factory, there's not a hell of a lot you can do. You know, you plug into a system, you're pretty much like flipping hamburgers, you know, and it used to be that you were actually building the car. So that kind of art, artisan, like that sort of, you know, craftsmanship is kind of gone. So I think that does alienate the workforce. And you see that everywhere in healthcare. Doctors constantly complain that they have to key in all this crap and they can't look at the patient. They'll say, excuse me, like you just talk, you know, in my ear and I'll key it in. And they used to actually, you know, make a connection. So I think in all these industries, you, you can make a distinction between displacement and alienation. And hmm. I think we do have alienation from automation. But in terms of displacement, we tend to create more jobs. Automation actually creates jobs, right? So... You don't see, I don't think that this trope of we're going to get more and more computation and then less and less human in, in the workforce. I don't think that's really the point. Awesome. Yeah. Is there anything else, Eric, you want to share? Not really. I just wish you the best of luck on the podcast and stay in touch. Likewise. Yeah. Excited for your new book. This is definitely one of my favorite books the myth of artificial intelligence so yeah keep us up to date and it's great chatting it was wonderful thank you very much for the opportunity i really appreciate it Moritz. have a good one you bet Ciao. thank you